You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. WDET and our Detroit Journalism Cooperative Partners are looking back to look forward nearly 50 years after this city and others erupted in violence. The cooperative is exploring whether conditions that contributed to that civic unrest have changed. We're looking at the Kerner Commission report that tried to determine why African Americans in so many cities were rioting during the 1960s. One of the issues, according to the commission, was housing. For the rest of this hour, we're going to explore that issue. Joining us is Bridge Magazine reporter Mike Wilkinson, who wrote a piece titled Black Flight to Suburbs, Masks Lingering Segregation in Metro Detroit. And with him is Margaret Brown, who is the executive director of the Fair Housing Center of Metropolitan Detroit. The center is a nonprofit that investigates discrimination claims in the Tri-County area. In the Bridge article, she said her group still receives hundreds of complaints annually from would-be tenants and home buyers, and that the number one complaint remains racial discrimination. Mike and Margaret, welcome to Detroit Today. Uh, good morning. Thank you. Yeah, uh, Mike. Let's start with uh, with your story here. Um, that that uh, the idea that um, you know in the last let's say fifteen or twenty years, uh, the flight, the exodus away from Detroit has looked really different than it did in the 30 or 40 years prior. Uh, It used to be that white people were leaving Detroit for the suburbs. We've now seen African-Americans repeat that pattern, uh, leaving the city for better schools, uh, uh, safer neighborhoods, what what have you. Uh, And that would seem to imply that uh, that, uh, segregation would... would, um, would sort of not go away, but certainly decrease as a result. If you integrate the suburbs, uh, you should see integration uh, in in those communities. Your story says that, in fact, that's not happening the way we might expect that it would have. Yeah, we're seeing the, the same patterns that that existed within Detroit before you know 1970, before 1967. You know, continued beyond the borders of the city, where you know. It, you have all this high concentration of African-Americans where other African-Americans are and whites where whites. I mean, the good news is that, you know, 1970, there were hundreds of neighborhoods across the Tri-County area where there were absolutely no African-Americans. Right. Uh, there are only three uh, census tracts in the, in the Tri-County area where that's true today. So in, on that in, on that score, there is There's progress. progress, sure. sure. But what we're seeing is, you know, this concentration in Southfield, in Warren, in Pontiac, Inkster River Rouge, where, yes, they're no longer in the city of Detroit and they have sought, you know, greener pastures, like you said, for better schools, for better economic opportunity, you know, to have their children grow up in a safer environment. But the concentrations are still there and the patterns are still there that when, you know, as as Margaret will talk perhaps about the tipping point that she's recognized, that when they move into Southern Warren, the whites move out. When they move into <laughs> Southfield, even though a third of, of the African-Americans in Southfield have a college degree, which is a higher rate than all of Macomb County, right. the whites move out. There's this discomfort that continues to to, to um, uh, create the tension that causes people to, to, to move out of their neighborhood and, and seek a less diverse place, even though as, as a whole, the entire region is more definitely more diverse. Right. Uh, there are two maps uh, that, that you run with the story at the uh, at, at, at bridge and the the first shows a very tight knot of 
uh, African-American population in the city. And this is in 1970, the year that I was born, uh, uh, that's sort of surrounded by neighborhoods that are almost all white uh, in the city and in the suburbs. Uh, Flash forward to 2010, uh, that tight knot of African-American population has sort of uh, I guess, spread out. Uh, it's all over the city and into uh, the the sort of southern parts of Oakland and Macomb, the eastern parts of uh, out Wayne County. Uh, but you still have these these really, really uh, majority white and, and overwhelmingly majority white, like less than 5% uh, sure. African-American all all around it. Yeah, you even have like in Warren where there's been, you know, there's this this... This uh, continuing trend from the mid 2000s on, where African Americans are, are are moving up there, you know, the, the schools are better than, or they're perceived better than where they were. You know, there are still places where it's one percent African American, completely surrounded by census tracts where it's 20, 25 percent. There's a square mile there where you, you wonder how how is that possible? I'm also fascinated that you know even today you've got a place uh, like Ecorse where. Half the city is 97% black, mm-hmm. and half the city is, is uh, I think it's 90% white, you know, separated by, of all things, a railroad track right. at well, the other side of the tracks. Shocking, right? <laughs> you know, but if you look at the town, oh, it's, it's integrated. It's 50-50. Well, it is in the total boundary, but in reality, right. both populations live in a different world. Right. Uh, Margaret Brown, uh, your work at uh, as the executive director of the Fair Housing Center of Metropolitan Detroit um, I think reveals that the the trends that Mike is is revealing in his in in the maps and in the data uh, are are not accidental. That that we are still seeing uh, barriers erected to African Americans who want to rent, African Americans who want to buy uh, in in certain communities. Well. First of all, thank you for having yeah, me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for being uh, here. <laughs> racism is hundreds and hundreds of years old. It didn't start in Detroit in the 1967s, and it probably won't end soon. So some of the things that create racism exist in the society. So we still have people who are told that the house is no longer available for sale, even though they have the, the right income, they have a good credit score, they have all other things being measured fairly, they would be a superior buyer, but right. they're still told that the real estate is not available in this 2016. We're still having situations where people are told there's no vacancies, or if there's a vacancy, you have to have a credit report, you have to have, uh, you know, we'll have to do a background check if you're black. But if you're white, come on in, let me show you the model units. So that all has to do with the historic history of racism, and it didn't change in the last 40 years. So one thing that has changed uh, since the 1960s is there are laws now on the books that prohibit that kind of uh, activity. One of the great achievements, in fact, of the civil rights movement is that we did change the statutes. Uh, You are not allowed to do that. So talk about what, what the consequences then uh, are or how difficult it might be to mete out those consequences when you see this kind of behavior? Well, actually, when I do my training, I like to start people at the beginning. There was a law passed in 1866 <laughs> right, right. that prohibited discrimination <laughs> based on um, race for real estate purchases. 
that law wasn't enforced largely due to the federal government's policies. So in 1968, the federal government changed its stance and passed another law that specifically made racial discrimination in housing illegal and added six other categories. Yes. But that law didn't have any teeth to it either. So in 1988, they passed yet another amendment to that law, and they put some teeth into it. So those are the that 1988 law is what we used as our enforcement tool to try to enforce the law against those people who still haven't realized this since 1866. It's been against the law. So so is it is it uh, is it common then for you to see? sellers or real estate agents or landlords who indulge in this kind of discrimination are punished for doing it? When we are made aware of it, we make our uh, our intent clear by educating the victim that they have some options and they choose which ones they want to uh, exercise. If they choose litigation, which is one of the options, then the courts up until now have been very um friendly uh-huh. in terms of enforcing those laws. Uh, so, yes, we still have a lot of cases on the books yeah. and we have a lot of complaints that come in. Is, is there any, uh, uh, is this a region-wide issue that you see all over in, in sort of equal number or are there certain places that seem to come up uh, more frequently than others? I don't know if it's because of the outreach and education. There are other fair housing centers in the state of Michigan, mm-hmm. uh, for example. Ann Arbor Ypsilanti has one. Their number one uh, cause of action is not race. It's familiar status, people who have children, oh, national origin, right. and people with disabilities. But here in Wayne, Oakland, Macomb County, which is our area, uh-huh. the number one has been and continues to be race. Race, race. Okay. Uh, This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guests are Mike Wilkinson, a reporter at Bridge Magazine, and Margaret Brown, who's the executive director of the Fair Housing Center of Metropolitan Detroit. We are talking about uh, housing, housing patterns, housing discrimination here in Metro Detroit uh, as part of our look back to the 1967 uprising here in the city of Detroit, uh, our partnership with Bridge through the Detroit Journalism Cooperative has us looking back to look forward, trying to determine whether the things that contributed to that uprising are still problems today in Metro Detroit. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, uh, talk about housing discrimination, talk about housing segregation here in Metro Detroit, talk about uh, the 1967 uprising in particular, if you remember it, uh, if you remember hearing about it. Uh, what do you think has changed in 50 years? Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. Uh, let's go to Valerie in Detroit. Valerie, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Uh-huh. Um, I have a, a then and now comment. I remember I was about eight, nine years old when the riot broke out, and I remember at the very beginning walking down the street with my parents and seeing people looting and, and, and carrying furniture, you know, across their backs. But I also remember the police coming into our apartment and putting a gun to my dad's head for no reason. And he was just a family man sitting in his own apartment. And I also remember walking down the street and the National Guard yelling out to us, 
go home, nigga, you know. Um, those were the kinds of things that <clears throat> were, you know, commonplace for black people to deal with. Sure. And, and But now, if we take a look now and we're talking about housing, we also have to talk about jobs. Yes. And when you think about, and I know this is a dead subject to so many, but affirmative action, when you think about affirmative action and what it meant or what it means, um, white people have the advantage of having affirmative action built into the fabric of their circle of influence. They know someone who has that job already, and I worked for a major corporation, and I saw myself, but uh, VPs, sitting around the lunch table on a regular basis with their nephews and their sons and daughters, <laughs> yeah. um, coaching them, making pathways for them to get uh, ahead and securing their jobs. And it was not uncommon. It was very prevalent. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's prevalent across America that white people are already in a place where they can help those they know along, yeah. uh, whether they're qualified or not. Yeah, Valerie, black when you, people, yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Valerie, when you talk about that, that opportunity, you're absolutely right. There still is this tremendous opportunity gap, and I'm glad you called to, to both uh, tell us about the things you remember experiencing 50 years ago, but then to sort of uh, bring us forward to the things that you still deal with and see uh, today. So thank you very much uh, for that call. All right, when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about housing in the region, about uh, the 50th anniversary of the 1967 uprising coming up in just a few months here in the city of Detroit. Uh, stay with us and stay with us on the phones. Dolores in Detroit, uh, Tom in Northwest Detroit, we'll get back to you. Uh, stay with us on Detroit Today. listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guests are Mike Wilkinson, a reporter at Bridge Magazine, and Margaret Brown, the executive director of the Fair Housing Center of Metropolitan Detroit. We are talking about housing segregation, housing segregation as it existed uh, 50 years ago after the uprising in 1967, and as it exists today, still in Metro Detroit. Uh, this is part of our work with the Detroit Journalism Cooperative to sort of look back, to look forward as we approach the 50th anniversary of that 1967 uprising do the things that uh, that help cause that uprising still exist today in Metro Detroit and in what form? 313-577-1019 is the number to join the conversation. That's 313-577-1019. Mike Wilkinson, you wanted to follow up on uh, Valerie, our last caller, who was talking about uh, these opportunity gaps that uh, that exist with housing uh, just here in, in Metro Detroit. Yeah, I think a lot of times people, you know, today look at today and say, well, you can you can live anywhere. Um, what's what's the cost? And 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 guys like Thomas Segru, um, the the Toledo, the Detroit native who who has written the great book on on, on the origins of the urban crisis here, mm-hmm. and you know uh, has talked about this and and many have about this wealth gap, and it's rooted so much in housing. When you couldn't buy a house just because you were black in 1950 or 1960, 
you didn't get the gain in its value in 1970. You didn't get the gain from the house in the suburbs in the 1990s. Yes. I mean, no one stopped my father from buying a house in St. Clair Shores in 1963, I think it was. And no one stopped him from, from taking the profits and buying one in the, in the suburbs of Macomb County um, seven years later. And, and what we have now is we have a, a, a wealth gap that's 14 times what whites typically have 14 times more wealth than blacks. Yeah. So much of that is rooted in home because the home is typically everyone's number one asset. So you know when you look just at today, you say, well, what's the problem? Well, the problem is you've just you've, you've gotten off the track of creating wealth for a century. Uh, and, 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 and that has real world problems. Yeah. And as you know, someone else in the story mentioned, so many people, so many African-Americans, when they were able to buy their house, bought it in Detroit. How much is that house worth now? Right. And, right. and because of the perception the... That, that, that it's unsafe and all that, you know, their home isn't worth it. So that gap just continues to, to grow. They, now the, the suburbs are out of reach. I think you mentioned off the air that uh, how many years would, would an African-American have to work just to close the gap? Just to catch up. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. it's almost years. impossible. Go ahead, Margaret Brown. But this is created largely by the federal government's policy. When I give my presentations, I tell the story of my friend's grandmother, who's 102, and a developer that built housing with FHA funds in Lincoln Park, uh-huh. which was a sundown town, uh-huh. which means that black people had to be out by sundown. Before, the, before it's dark, right. And... He built a development. He sold most of the houses down to the last few. The federal government mandated that he could only sell those houses to white citizens. But he was down to his last few, and he needed to get rid of them. So he went to my friend's grandmother's community, which is all black community, and said, if you all want to buy these houses, I'll sell them to you. I won't tell. You won't tell. So she and her husband bought their first house in Lincoln Park, back in the 1950s uh, and lived there for many, many years before they upgraded. Yeah. She had the opportunity to get what normally would have been designated for white citizens only right. because she was able to buy the house, she and her husband. I haven't figured out yet why no one turned her in, but I suspect <laughs> that because of that 15% tipping point that I mentioned to you earlier, they were such a small minor- minority in terms of the total housing right. There I can no, see in Lincoln Park there was no problem. Yeah. But the thing is, all the people that bought those develop those houses that were developed by the federal government in the fifties got all of that advantage yes. that you yeah. just mm-hmm. talked about. I mean about. you talk about things like uh, uh FHA, the GI Bill, uh all of these things that created opportunity. Uh, for Americans, black people were left Excuse out of. Uh, Deliberately, uh, my so. father. My father was uh, a veteran of the Korean War, came back uh, to America and couldn't participate in the GI Bill for college or for uh, home buying. I mean, and, and of course, these things have generational effects. I mean, that that's opportunity and wealth accumulation that uh, that several generations later you still. You still have to, to, to grapple with. Uh, let's go back to the phones here. Lois uh, in Garden City. Lois, welcome to Detroit Today. Well, thank you. Um, I enjoy your show so much. And I was listening today. I had just a couple of comments to make about my experiences when the riots began. Uh-huh. Uh, I was a young, I'm a white person. I was a young uh, married person. Um, my husband was in the Michigan National Guard. He was a full-time civilian employee, 
And we had been downtown Detroit getting an auto loan at the Detroit Newspaper Industrial Credit Union. <laughs> wow. <laughs> right there by the Free Press yeah, office. Right. <laughs> and had been down there in the afternoon. Then the riots began that day or that evening, and he got called into work and had to go down there. And he was part of the National Guard troops who were down there. So I was left home with a couple of little kids, and he called me. I, I, I don't have my time frame exactly straight, mm-hmm. but it had to be probably the next day because by then we knew that 43 people were dead. Right. There was the burning. There was the looting. All this stuff was going on. And he called me and said that he could get me a full-length mink coat for $300 or a stereo for $50. And I said, my God, 43 people are dead. I would look yeah. at those things forever, and that would be all I would see. No, no, and he dropped it immediately. Wow, wow. Um, and wow. That's, a, my, that's my other memory. I'm just giving you my impression of, you know, my memories of what yeah. happened. But the other thing that happened is that I was home alone with these, these little kids, and I got a phone call from someone who said, that were, there were some black guys creating a disturbance at Ford and Middle Belt, and, which is the main intersection in Garden City. In Garden City, yeah. And so I called my mom and dad, who lived at the far end of town, and said, I'm bringing the kids over, and we're going to stay with you. That way we'd ha- have a man in the house. Right. And this was all a very, it was very frightening, you know, yeah. all the way around. It was frightening for all of us. Yeah. And I, I would imagine that that report was probably false. I don't remember that the African Americans were out uh, in Garden City uh, mm-hmm. doing anything. But Lois, thank you very much for the call, and uh, again for for contributing those memories to this uh, to this conversation. Uh, I'm going to go back to Tom in Northwest Detroit. You got cut off earlier, Tom. I want to let you finish before we get uh, to the end of the show here. Yeah, well, I didn't have a senior moment, but anyway, <laughs> like I said. <laughs> You know, the city is suffering today, though there's, you know, we're kind of getting better, but there was a disinvestment in people and a disinvestment in businesses. Because, I mean, if you look at it, look at the number of people that we have, I mean, that have left this city. I mean, at one time when I came here in 53 with my parents, it was a million eight hundred thousand people or somewhere thereabout. We're down to what, 670, 680,000. And, uh, you know, but, but ultimately... I'm the eternal optimist. Detroit's got better days and a brighter future ahead. And this, will it be great again? Ah, I care not. But I just <laughs> want it to be a city that I thrives. I hope it'll be great, Tom. No, I have two little kids growing up here that uh, that need it to be great. And I think a lot of other people do, too. Tom, as always, thanks very much sure. uh, for your call and for your comments. Uh, before we go, uh, let's quickly get to Dolores in Detroit. Uh, Dolores, I've got about a minute left. But, uh, oh, hi, Stephen. Actually, yeah, my, my comment question had to do... More with your discussion with Bill McGraw, Bill McGraw, because yeah. <laughs> I'm concerned about this using rebellion and riot like they're convertible terms, right. and I Which think they are not. something much deeper under there. And listening to your caller, it has to do with a racial component to sure. it, and uh, that that needs really thoroughly hassled out, I think, and defined. Yeah, no, uh, Dolores, that's a great point, and we will spend a lot of time. Over the next uh, months, you know, in the run up to this anniversary, talking about those terms, uh, riot, rebellion, uprising, 
uh, what they mean, why they get used, and how they are sometimes misused. So, uh, so stay tuned to the program, and uh, we will we will clear all of that up as well. But I appreciate your calling today uh, to interject that into the conversation. Okay, uh, Mike Wilkinson, reporter at Bridge Magazine, Margaret Brown, executive director of the Fair Housing Center of Metropolitan Detroit. Thank you both for being here on Detroit Today. Thank you. And you can check out uh, Mike Wilkinson's story at bridgemi.com. WDT and Bridge's work with the Detroit Journalism Cooperative is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the Knight Foundation, and the Ford Foundation's Renaissance Journalism Project. You can find more work on the Intersection Project at DetroitJournalism.org. That's going to do it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow. Hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET Detroit, Wayne State's public radio station. See you tomorrow.